Well, our men are doing a Bible study on Thursday morning, and they're actually working through a book entitled How God Makes Men, 10 Epic Stories and 10 Proven Principles by Patrick Morley. And I picked up the book and started reading, and I was so intrigued by an introduction he gives. Listen to this. While writing this chapter, I spent many hours with a man who once encouraged his wife to sleep with another man so he could get ahead. He also fathered a child with his housekeeper and later cut them both off financially. Once, when he was surrounded by thugs who had their eyes on his pretty wife, he pretended to be single to avoid getting roughed up. What kind of man would do those things? Would you be surprised to learn he was describing Abraham? That's right. So is there hope for all of us? Absolutely. And that is part of what we learn from the life of Abraham. We see God's faithfulness in the midst of his unfaithfulness. And we're going to actually look at that as we work through our session today. But we move into Genesis 14, and there's going to be a war. Now, what happened was there were four kings led by Keterlaomer who had been causing the people in the valley to pay tribute for over 12 years. Well, the people in the valley, the five kings got together and decided, we don't want to pay that tribute anymore, so we're going to rebel. We're going to refuse to pay the taxes, and let's just kind of see what happens. Well, what happened is what usually happens when that tribute is no longer being paid. The kings got together, and a year later, they come in to invade the valley. What do they do? They take the people and the possessions out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fertile Jordan Valley, and they leave with them. Well, a fugitive, someone who escapes, comes and tells Abram, oh my, do you know what's happened to the Jordan Valley? And did you hear about Sodom and Gomorrah? And oh, by the way, your nephew Lot and his family were taken as well. Well, now, if you think about what Abram and Lot had just done, they had come back from Egypt and their their livestock and everything they had now, they had amassed so much that they could no longer live together. So they had to separate. What did Abram do? We see him move in an act of faith by telling Lot, you pick first. I'll take whatever's left. He was trusting the Lord. What did Lot do? He looked out at the fertile Jordan Valley and thought, "Mm, that looks really good. I'll take the best of the land. And we know that things are not always as they appear physically. So he chose the fertile Jordan Valley, and it tells us that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. But we find out once the kings come in, he's already living in Sodom. So he is taken away, and what does Abram do? I mean, he could very easily have said, you know what? You chose. You got yourself into this mess. Let's see how you do getting out. But that is not what Abram did. Abram got his 318 trained men who were obviously trained for war because they used military strategy in going after these kings. And some of his allies joined him. They go, God gives them a resounding defeat because they defeat them, they pursue them, they, he divided his people up, they went in after them, they were able to bring back all the people, all the plunder. And he's able to bring back his nephew Lot. So when he gets to, to Genesis 14, where we're going to pick up, we've got two kings who come out to meet him as he's coming back with victory. And let's look at verse 17 in Genesis 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. Now, don't you wonder how he didn't get taken? Um, Went out to meet them at, at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High, and he's going to speak first. Melchizedek said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of the plunder. Then the king of Sodom speaks. He says to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Those were his allies that went with him to battle. So he says, me and my men, we will take nothing except what they've eaten because the Lord God is my source. And I don't want anybody to say that the king of Sodom made me rich. Now, what did he encounter after this incredible victory? He comes back in, bringing all the people, all the plunder, and these two kings come out to meet him. The king of Salem, which he is a foreshadowing, a picture of Christ. In fact, he's so Christ-like, some people wonder, was this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? But no, according to the New Testament, he appears to have been an actual person chosen by God to be priest, foreshadowing Christ, who would not be of the lineage of Levi, but would be chosen by God out of the tribe of Judah to be priest. And Jesus Christ is also king, king of Salem, king of peace, a picture of Christ. And so he comes out and what does he do? He blesses Abram. But what does he reassure him? You didn't win this battle, bud. God gave you victory. God gave you this amazing victory against these other kings. And God is the one who's blessed you. And Abraham recognized what he said as true and took a tenth, a tithe, and gave it to him. So he's tested here. And when the king of Sodom offers him all this plunder, the riches of the world that so many people are enticed by, didn't even entice him, did it? No, he wouldn't take it because he knew God was the one who was going to provide for him. Now we move from that into Genesis 15. And after these things, after this victory, after this war, and you got to wonder if Abraham wasn't thinking, okay, We were really brave and God gave us a victory, but we've cut off the taxation. We're not paying them anymore. We brought back all the people and the plunder. Will they seek revenge? Will they come back? I have to believe that that's what he was thinking because of the way God approaches him in Genesis 15. In a vision, Abram hears the Lord saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. He's saying, Abram, I will protect you. I will be a shield about you. Your reward shall be very great. And I love that in this verse, it actually means your reward will be exceedingly abundantly great. (laughs) And I love it. I've got on my Ephesians 3.20 necklace this morning because that's my life verse. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could begin to ask or imagine according to his power that dwells or lives within us. That's exactly what we're seeing here. Now, when we think about God coming to him, you have to remember he came to him in 12, right? Says, I'm going to bless you and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Then he comes to him in chapter 13 and he renews it again. And he says, not only that, your descendants are going to outnumber like the dust of the earth. If you could count the dust of the earth, you could count your descendants, Abram. Now he's coming back to him. And he tells him, I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. I think reassuring him and letting him know, I am your protector and I will be the one who rewards you. But Abram says in verse two, oh Lord God, what will you give me 
since I am childless. Now, I don't believe that this was lack of faith because God's already told them, I'm going to bless, the nations are going to be blessed through your descendants. Your descendants are going to outnumber the dust. But he's going, how's it going to happen? It kind of reminds me of the Virgin Mary. (laughs) When Gabriel comes to hear her and tells her, you're the chosen one, hell favored one. You've been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. And she's going, okay, but like, I kind of think I know biologically how this works. So how's that going to (laughs) happen? And Abram's looking at his, you know, 75-ish older now body and thinking, okay, I know you've told me this, but exactly how is this going to happen? That's how he must be coming across to the Lord now. Because you've given no offspring to me. One born in my house must be my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man, Eleazar of Damascus, is not going to be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. So then God takes him outside. Most commentators believe it was probably just before the sun was coming up, so it's still dark outside, and he would have come out into that beautiful outdoors where there's no lights like we have, and he would be able to see all the stars in the sky. And what does God say to him? He says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So your descendants are going to outnumber the dust of the earth, and they're going to outnumber the sky, the stars in the sky. Then he believed in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6, and God reckoned or credited it to him as righteousness. We see salvation in the Old Testament is just exactly what it is in the New. It is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. He is saved by believing. God spoke, God revealed Abram believed God credited or reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. He did not cut the birds. So what this was a common custom when two parties were coming into a covenantal agreement with one another. They would literally cut a covenant and they would cut the animals in two. Sometimes it would just be one, but God tells them exactly what he is to bring. And is it not interesting that these are some of the same animals that God is going to require of sacrifices when he gives the law to Moses? So we see God telling him what animals to bring. He cuts them in half and he has the two birds and probably laid the birds opposite each other and thinking, okay, God's going to cut a covenant with me. So that means at some point I've got to walk through these animals because when each party would walk through these dead animals, they were saying, may my blood be shed. May I die if I fail to uphold this covenant. So it was a very serious agreement. That's not exactly what happened here, was it? So it says, And 11, then the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, so evidently he's seen the stars. God tells him to go get the animals. Sometimes in the morning, that was his work, to get these animals, to get them prepared, to prepare for the covenant. And then all afternoon, he's trying to protect them, thinking, okay, Lord, when are you going to move on this? When are we going to do this? What's going to happen? And God doesn't come back to him until it's evening. Now, when the sun was going down in verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. 
And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, the same word for deep sleep here is exactly the same word used in Genesis chapter 2 when a deep sleep came upon um, Adam and God took Eve out of his side. It's that same word for that's how deep the sleep was. So it was induced by God. And then God was going to reveal truth to him while this darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not yours. Well, they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God has a timeline, a deadline. And he will allow people and nations to continue in willful rebellion and disobedience until finally he draws the line in the sand and says, enough. And that's what he's saying. The iniquity of the Amorites is not fulfilled. I haven't come to the end of the time to be, to be done with them. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, reminding us of the fire and the cloud. It gives us an idea of what the top of Mount Sinai looked like when God's presence came down and fire and flashes of lightning were coming off of the mountain. It also makes us think about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led them all the 40 years in the wilderness. So it's obviously the presence of God which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord cut or made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. Abram, It's as good as done. I have already given this land to your descendants. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. H.D.M. Spence in his commentary said, let saints learn how blind is human reason and how feeble faith becomes when it tries to walk by sight. Let them also notice and consider how sure are God's promises and how inexhaustible are God's resources. Now, what we see here is a man and a woman who really are past childbearing age. And yet God has chosen them out of pagan idolatry. And he's telling him, I'm choosing you. You are going to be the one promised from Genesis 3.15. You are going to be the one through whom the deliverer will eventually come. And I'm choosing you. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bring one from your body through whom these descendants will come that will outnumber the dust and outnumber the stars of the sky. But we know it's going to take a while, isn't it? We have to learn to live in Bible time. We serve a God who speaks as though things are, because when you're not bound by time, they are. We are bound by linear time. And so we wait what seems like a long time. Abram and Sarah will wait 25 years to get the promise of Isaac. But God doesn't waste that time because as we're going to see, God is sanctifying Abraham and maturing his faith in the gap time. God is never idle. God is always at work on multiple levels to fulfill his word. And his word will never return void. It never drops empty. It always accomplishes the purposes for which he sends it. Now, I want to ask you, Abram believed 
in spite of his circumstances. What are you believing God for? Or what are you allowing unbelief to come in and with it bring fear and discouragement and impatience? What are your life circumstances and where are you not trusting God? What about your marriage? Are you expecting that God's just going to sap you or your husband and suddenly he's going to be Prince Charming? <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> it is a sanctification tool. It is making you more like Jesus. It is rubbing off your rough edges. That's what marriage is. It's a sanctification tool to make us more like Christ because every day we have to die. Every day we have to put somebody else's needs above our own. And it just shows us how selfish we all are. Steve and I had been married 10 years before I figured out that I was really still trying to run the marriage. I wanted him, I had these expectations and I wanted him to live up to these expectations and he was rebelling against my expectations. I just... Didn't understand that until the Lord got a hold of my heart and showed me the ugliness of the rebellion in my own heart. And I ended up face down on the ground, weeping and asking the Lord to forgive me because suddenly I saw the rebellion in my heart. And you know what? I let go of the, I've told y'all before, marriage can be like a tug of war. And when somebody lets go, what happens in a tug of war? There's nothing to pull against, right? Well, when I let go, God began to actually accomplish some of those things I was unable to accomplish. And he brought unity in our marriage and he began to teach us and work with us to become more like Christ instead of having to fight me to get in to talk to either one of us because I was in the way. And I didn't even realize it because I thought it was right. I mean, I am your typical firstborn opinionated strong-willed child. You know, if everybody would just listen to me, we could just straighten the whole thing out. You know? <laughs> and the Lord had to show me, Donna, you are not sovereign or omnipotent. You don't know it all. And you have so much to learn. And when I began to die daily, I began to recognize just how weak and foolish my own reasoning was and how I self-sabotaged some of God's good gifts and plans by getting in the way with what I thought and how I thought things were supposed to go. What about with your own health? I believe in being healthy, eating healthily, exercising. We want to take care of our temple. We can get overly focused on that to where it becomes all-consuming and we don't even enjoy life, or we can just forget it and say, you know what, I'm going to die anyway and <laughs> be a couch potato. Neither extreme is right, okay? We want to be healthy because our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord, and we want to be able to serve the Lord as long as He gives us breath. Um, are you trusting Him with your health? Are you abnormally fearful? Are you... Always afraid you're going to be diagnosed with something? Are you living under fear? Can you trust God? What about with your children or a wayward child? Instead of fretting and worrying and being anxious or trying to control them and pull them back to the Lord, release them to the Lord and pray. Intercede. Enlist prayer warriors. I mean, cover that child in prayer. And be honest with people about where they are and what's going on. It's embarrassing. It hurts. I know I've been there. But when you get gut level honest with people about where your child is, they know how to intercede. And you share with them the verses that you're claiming that God has given you for your child, that you know this is who God says he is. Because we see in the life of Abram, God calls him a prophet when he's not acting very prophetly. But God sees who he's called him to be just as he sees your child and who he's called that child to be. And if it's your child, God will reveal to you 
who that child is to be in God's eyes, and you begin to pray that person into being as you go to battle on their behalf. What about your finances? Are you fearful of not having enough about the future, looking at retirement, what's going to happen? The stock market's all over the place. The stock market is not our source. Your pension plan, your retirement, your job is not your source. It's a resource that God sometimes flows through and provides through, but that's not your source. God is our source. That's what we learned from Abram. Abram knew, I don't have to depend on the king of Sodom. God is my provider. God will give me what I need. What about your future? We can be fearful of the future. Look at the culture. I mean, everything about our culture makes us anxious. Even social media makes you anxious because everybody's got polarized views on just about everything. I mean, I've virtually just gotten off of it. The only one I'll go to sometimes is Facebook because it's usually like, happy birthday, happy anniversary. It's like fun things, good things. <laughs> I realize not always, but it, I just, the angst there, the, the polarization, that is not what Christ has called us to. He's called us to be unifiers. He's called us to be those who speak life. We're not fearful of the future. We know where we're going. We're simply passing through this life. And what about friends? Are you possessive of your friends? Or are you a safe friend who's always welcoming others in? Who's always building up? Who's edifying? Who's speaking life into your friendships? And we know that Abram believed against all odds. And God credited it to him as righteousness. And the New Testament reaffirms that. In fact, in Romans 4, 22 through 25, says, therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Abram is the picture of the chosen one through whom the promised one would come, Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, we are grafted in to the very lineage of Abraham. You and I are descendants of Abraham. You and I have been grafted into the lineage of Christ if we are believers. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 says, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Ah, Don't you love that? Abraham's called by God, the believer. I too want to live as a believer, a believer in God's word. I want to base my life on his promises. And then we know that God cut that covenant with Abram knowing As he allowed this deep sleep, the same deep sleep that came upon Adam, which lets us know Adam had absolutely nothing to do with Eve being taken from his side and created. God did all of it, right? Well, same thing with Abram. Abram did absolutely nothing with this covenant. It was all God. God's manifest presence passed through the cut animals, and God was saying, I'm going to uphold this covenant, but even if you don't, I uphold your end as well. Knowing that it would cost his son his death on the cross so that the debt to that covenant could be paid because of our sin. So we have this beautiful picture of the cross and what was to come as God cuts this covenant with Abraham. I liked 
what was on page 52 of our workbook this week. Jesus was crucified outside the city gate that we might be invited in. Jesus was thirsty that we might have rivers of living water flowing forth from our inner man. Jesus was stripped that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Jesus was forsaken that we might be accepted. Jesus died that we might live forever. Oh, dear friend, believe, just believe, and it will be reckoned or credited to you as righteousness. Now, you know, it's Abraham's journey to spiritual maturity that really allows us an opportunity to see his character develop. And it's that development of character that enabled him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice eventually. And as faith grows, holiness is manifest. As our faith muscles get strengthened, we become more and more like Christ. James 2, 21 through 23 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called, here's another name for him, the friend of God. So we have Abraham the believer and Abraham the friend of God. And we've been grafted in. We are his descendants if we believe. So we also are Rose the believer. Rose, you are a believer. You are in Christ. And consequently, you're a friend of God. How awesome is that? For each of us individually, not just corporately, but individually, we can each be friends of God. Jesus said that when he was teaching his disciples at the end. He says, I don't call you slaves. I call you friend. Greater love has no one than this that he laid on his life for his friends, which is what Jesus did for us, grafting us, adopting us into the very family of God. Well, we're going to look at Abraham's spiritual journey. And our wonderful women's ministry took my really rough looking drawing and writing and turned it into this magnificent chart. It just looks so good. I was so excited by it. Because our goal as believers is to be conformed to Christ. And so I want us to look at this spiritual journey of Abraham to encourage us to look at our own spiritual journey. And that's your additional homework this week. I want you to look back on your life, your point of salvation. And I want you to begin thinking about times, circumstances, testings, times of faith, where God came through for you. And maybe you were, whoo, you were on that trajectory going forward. And then boom, something happened. You took a dip down and then, oh, wait a minute, here we go again. That's what we see in Abraham's life. So it gives us hope and encouragement that we too are being sanctified and made more like Jesus. So we see Abram, God sees us and calls us who and what we will be. God knows who he's called you to be. And he's called us to be like Christ. And so he sees you as that right now. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. God calls into being that which does not exist yet. So he calls us to live up to the name of a believer and of a friend of God. Now look at him. Okay, so Genesis 12, he obeyed the call of God. Okay, so we're starting. He's a pagan idol worshiper. The God of heaven and earth calls him, he obeys, and he starts out on this, you know, go and I will show you where I'm taking you. Faith journey. So he obeys. So we see the trajectory starting up. Then in 12.7, he builds an altar. He gets to Canaan, he builds an altar, and he worships the Lord. And then he gets 
goes on and he builds another altar and he worships the Lord. But then something happens. There's a difficult circumstance. There's a famine in the land. And what does he do? He doesn't go back to the altar. He doesn't seek the Lord. He just makes a decision. Ah, I've heard there's food in Egypt. Let's go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt and we're on a downward trajectory now. Do you see that? Because he gets to Egypt and he says, okay, you're really beautiful and they're going to want you. So you just lie and tell them that you're my sister. Like we're not married. You're my sister so that they don't kill me to get you. Now God has just said to him, all your descendants, right? They're going, they're going to, you're going to bless the nations. I'm going to give you. And, but he can't hear that right now. All he can see is, ooh, these people are going to kill me for my wife. And so she agrees to lie. And the bottom is, she's taken into Pharaoh's harem. Oh, my goodness. But God is going to fulfill his word. So he sends plagues on Pharaoh's uh, Pharaoh and his household, and evidently Sarah's probably the only one that wasn't touched by the plague because he's going, okay, wait a minute, all of us are sick, she's not. All right, <laughs> what did you do? How could you have done this to us? And so he sends him away, but he sends him away with all this livestock that he had given him in exchange for Sarah, and he doesn't take it back. So they get back, and most believe that's where they gets Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden, um, and all of this livestock, which is the reason when they get back, he and Lot can't live beside each other in the land anymore. They had to separate. And so they separate. He comes back. But when he gets back to the land, what does he do? We're starting an upward trajectory again because he built an altar to the Lord and he worships the Lord. He recognizes what he's done. And then God's going to visit him in 13, 14, renew this promise. That's when he tells him, your descendants will outnumber the dust. And then Abram and Lot part and Abram's trusting God again. You choose. I'll just go wherever. God is my portion. I don't, it doesn't matter where I live. God's going to give this land to my descendants. And then we got the battle with the kings. We looked at this morning and God gives a miraculous rescue. Lot is rescued and brought back the test with the two kings representing the spirit and the flesh. Abram, who are you trusting? Are you going to trust God or are you going to look to the world to provide for you? And then we've got God's promise that we looked at in Genesis 15. And Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then the climax of this story right now that we're looking at today is the cutting of the covenant. It's so amazing. And it so foreshadows what God is going to accomplish through Christ. But next week, we're going to see we come down again. In fact, he falls flat on his face. (laughs) That's encouraging, though. That's really good news for us. That's really good news for us. Because that means there's hope for us as well. Because I don't know about you, I have fallen flat on my face before. And I am so grateful that my tender father and precious savior will lift me back up and help me walk and comfort me with the comfort that only he can give so that then I'm able one day to comfort someone else with the comfort that he's given me. And he opens my eyes just a little wider to who he is to how faithful he is, to how good he is. And when we think about measuring Abram's spiritual growth, I mean, we measure things all the time. Companies measure their economic growth. Schools measure their academic growth. When you take a baby to the doctor, what do they do? They measure their length and they weigh them and they tell you what percentile they're in. They're measuring their growth. Why? Because growth is healthy, right? It means it's healthy. Okay, well, that's why I'm wanting you this week to chart your spiritual journey. Not only will it help you think back through and see and remember, because all through the Bible, God says, remember. So as you look back on your own spiritual journey, you're going to remember some things that maybe you've kind of forgotten or haven't thought about in a while, and you're going to see the faithfulness of God. And it's a boost to our faith when we see and remember answered prayer. 
and times that God has moved or revealed himself to us. But we're also going to see times when we let fear come in or we decided to lean on our own understanding and we whoop, we went down instead of going up on an upward trajectory. But the beautiful part of Abraham's life is we're going to see as he gets to the end, it's a continual upward trajectory at the end of his life. Do you understand that the Bible values old age and wisdom more than youth? Because in our youth, we don't know God as well. We haven't had the life experiences that someone older than us has had. So God values those who have great life experience and have walked with him because it wasn't until Abraham was well over 100 years old, probably like anywhere from 113 to 115, that God asked him to offer Isaac as a burnt offering that's totally consumed, nothing left over, and he doesn't even hesitate. That's where I want to be. I want to believe. I want to be Donna the believer, the friend of God. May that be the desire of all of our hearts. Will you pray with me? Father, how we thank you. How we thank you for the goodness and the power of your word. How we thank you, Lord, that you don't whitewash the people that you've chosen and worked through in scripture. Lord, that gives us great hope. And so, Lord, I pray that we will learn from the life of Abram. And God, that you will be able to look at us and call us by name the believer and the friend of God. How we love you. How we thank you that it is because of Jesus Christ that we can know you intimately, that we can experience life abundant and life eternal. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you are good. And you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.